Hi, everyone, and welcome to this next episode of the Sustainable Connections podcast. If you're a listener, you know what it's about. If you're new to the program, Sustainable Connections is ERM's podcast where we explore with leaders in the corporate sustainability field, the kinds of collaboration and partnership that they're undertaking, the ideas that they're exploring to try and advance this field faster, to do more good work at scale. I've got two fantastic people with me today to explore those concepts. I'm lucky to have Ken Melman, who's a partner and the global head of public affairs and the co-head of global impact at KKR, as well as Sabine Hofnagel, the global leader of sustainability and risk at ERM, one of my colleagues in our organization. Ken and Sabine, first off, welcome. Please just say hello and, and, and let's hear your voices. And Ken, would you add anything to that brief title by way of bio that you like to highlight? I would only add that I am a huge ERM fan. Uh, I was really pleased to be involved in uh, the partnership we've developed, and it's been even more pleasurable and impressive as I've met more and more colleagues at the ERM organization. Awesome. Well, we didn't only invite you on here because you're a fan, but your support (laughs) since we've worked together has really been something we can feel and see. And it's a little bit of what I want to explore today. Sabine, welcome. Also, what would you highlight that goes with that sustainability and risk title? What does that mean? Really great to be on this podcast. I'm a massive podcast fan, but this is the first time that I'm actually featuring in one. So very excited uh, for today's conversation. I love my role. It's quite multifaceted. It includes the enterprise risk management function. It includes our own sustainability function, but it also looks at strategic partnerships as well as um, brand communications and marketing and, and also partnerships. So lots of elements. And within that, lots of collaboration with KKR, including with Ken. Yeah, and super, obviously, those elements for sustainable connections as a concept. And also, I think so interesting your role in so many other places now, how we see sustainability and risk coming closer and closer together in the ways they're being managed. Now, both Ken and Sabine, we're going to have a pretty far ranging discussion on the state of ESG and corporate sustainability. But while it's obvious to the three of us why I would have the two of you together for sustainable connections, I don't think listeners will necessarily know about the KKR ERM relationship. The briefest version, of course, is that KKR has been an investor in ERM for almost two years now, but let's get behind that a tiny bit. And Ken, if I can first go to you, why did KKR seek out this investment? Why are you a fan, I guess? And Sabine, on our side, why was KKR chosen among the other suitors who were in play when ERM was last exploring investment partners? Ken? So when we make an investment, we try to look for a couple different things. One, we want to find a space, a macro space, where we have a lot of confidence in the themes around which we're investing. So we want to look for a company where we think the industry is likely to grow in the future based on important needs going forward. And a sector where we think what we call tailwinds exist behind what the business is doing. And the second thing we want to look for is what is particular to the company or the asset? What do they bring to the table that's different? How is their product or service differentiated? How do they offer something that's unique and important? And what's the culture like in the organization? And what was exciting to us when we invested in ERM, and I remember having a very early conversation with the R in KKR, George Roberts, probably about five years ago. We talked about ERM and and talked about the potential for our making an investment in the company was we had both factors. So on the one hand, if you stop and you think about what's happening around the world, what's happening, for example, with the energy transition, 
what's happening with increased focus around transparency around supply chain so that we can enhance resiliency, geopolitics, and sustainability when it comes to supply chain. The increased attention around how we use resources uh, because of growing population, because of these geopolitical concerns, because of questions regarding what it means from an environmental perspective. And then finally, the increased attention also on social impact, increasing thinking about, for example, if you're building a pipeline, what communities is that being built through? What populations are being affected by it? How does it impact workers? All of these areas are growing in importance. They're growing in importance for lots of reasons. They're growing because of geopolitical rivalry. They're growing because of what we learned during COVID when lots of things that were essential weren't available because we had a just-in-time supply chain. They're growing because of the concerns that people have with respect to climate change and environmental questions. But I think most of all, they're growing because of an even bigger revolution than the ones I just described. And that is the impact of radical transparency. Hmm. Steve Jobs and people like Mark Zuckerberg changed the world in a way that you haven't seen since Gutenberg. Uh, In that time, uh, the printing press made available to people with previously few people knew. And today, everyone's a journalist, everyone's a participant. And so there's a lot more information about every one of the questions I described. And that creates a need for companies and other organizations that are involved in industry, that are involved in transportation, that are involved in agriculture, that are involved in every sector to make sure they're operating in a way that's consistent with what their customers would expect, legal norms, changing regulations, and changing expectations. And that's what ERM does. And so helping people understand in a very specific way uh, what the footprint of a proposed project is from an environmental perspective, uh, from a geopolitical perspective, from a resiliency perspective, helping companies who want to improve that footprint, who want to commit to net zero, who want to align in a way that is more responsible and that reflects geopolitical questions. All of those questions require a really good partner who can tell you how. And that gets the second uh, component of why we were so excited about ERM, which is the nature of the business. There's a lot of consultants that will give you help. But how many of those consultants are filled with scientists? How many are filled with people who are truly expert in the questions I described, not from a positioning perspective, but from a data collection perspective? And I think ERM's combination of a scientific group of colleagues with real serious expertise combined with, very importantly, a culture in which there's real collaboration and a purpose-driven organization that is committed to doing this work in a way that puts their clients first and takes their responsibility to the world and to the earth and to the future very seriously is a powerful combination. So if you believe, as as we do, that the needs of uh, companies when it comes to sustainability questions are only growing, then a partner that is filled with true experts who take that expertise and put it to work for the client in a way that produces win-win outcomes is a pretty exciting investment. And that was what made us so excited about working with ERM. Amazing. There's a ton there. And I loved the references to the transparency revolution. We'll probably come back to that, I think. And I also liked that little note you slipped in there that gave evidence of how long you've been thinking about this, that there were conversations five years ago or more uh, for an investment that took place two years ago. And you build up to these things and take them incredibly seriously over time. Sabine, what about on the ERM side? 
Yeah, it's so interesting to hear Ken's kind of rationale and, and all of that really shone through during the due diligence process. And, you know, the process itself was fascinating and we had quite a lot of choice at the time. But it was very clear very early on that KKR was one of the front runners. And the reason why was really, there were a bunch of reasons. And I think the first one is really around productivity. It was so clear that KKR really wanted to invest. They had done an enormous amount of homework. They had by far the most insightful questions, on, particularly on the content of our work, which shines through in what, what Ken was just saying. And they were also very prepared to be creative, whether it was with regards to structuring the deal or, you know, where the focus should be for the business. I think secondly is around networks and knowledge. KKR brings an enormous amount of knowledge um, that we knew we were going to be able to benefit from in, in many different areas. And we're seeing this play out now, whether that is with regards to you know, acquisitions that we're looking to make, whether that is with regards to the digitization of our business, or whether it is about helping to navigate very difficult geopolitical issues. On that last point, we're getting access to the KKR Global Institute, for example, which has been extremely helpful. There are many, many more examples. And then in terms of networks, you know, it really is about KKR being able to facilitate connections to people and organizations we'd like to collaborate with. And again, we knew from the, from the get-go that there was lots of potential there. Another very important factor was the fact that KKR brought a long-term outlook and is bringing a long-term outlook. As opposed to kind of normal private equity deals, um, this time we are part of KKR's core fund. And I think that's important because some of the changes and investments that ERM is looking to do might take longer to get a, a very good ROI on rather than in the normal kind of four to six year um, cycle with, with normal private equity. And not being tied to that traditional cycle uh, was tremendously exciting for us and, and attractive. The next thing I'd like to talk about is culture fit. And Ken mentioned that as well. You know, we felt from the get-go that KKR really believed in our purpose and also really understood that we are a people business. The amount of time that we spent during the due diligence, as well as now in our board meetings and in, and in other meetings, talking about those two topics really shows that. Yeah, as we come to the almost two-year anniversary of this being a formal relationship between us, I just look back at the pace and the number of things that have been happening it's been an incredible start to a collaboration and a partnership in that regard, and really excited about what we can do together going forward. In terms of what we can do going forward, you know, I want to look back a little bit at the ESG field. And I think based on what each of you said, um, Ken, maybe especially your description of the, the scaling and the change in the field, it's probably safe to say that one of the reasons KKR invested is the degree of interest and the broadening of work on ESG and sustainability performance worldwide. ESG as a term has been around for just over a decade. It seems to have been redefined multiple times in just that period. It's business case, what drives it and why people explore partly jobs in Zuckerberg, but much more. And I wonder if we can get into what's behind that ESG business case. Sabine, can you talk about how that's been evolving over time and where you think we are now? If we maybe touch upon why have we seen this growth in terms of ESG and sustainability rising up the agenda in the business world? I think firstly, good businesses really look at and manage their risks and their opportunities well. And if we're looking at the risks that, the, that businesses are facing, for example, by looking at the World Economic 
forum's top annual risks over the last few years, you'll see that sustainability has been in the top five firmly for a number of years now. And that, you know, it's really a risk related to climate change or, or ecosystem crisis or, or natural resources, as well as, um, you know, topics like the er- erosion of, uh, of social cohesion. So a good business simply cannot ignore this if they want to stay around and be resilient. And then on the opportunity side, there is so much to go for. You know, the, the IEA estimates that in 2023, uh, the investment in energy will be $2.8 trillion and 1.7 of that is going to clean energy. And only five years ago, that ratio was one to one. So massive change there. But it's not just about renewables. It's also about things like lower carbon aluminium demanding a premium or customers going for goods with stronger sustainability credentials or maybe getting a higher valuation if you're part of a private equity portfolio or simply companies driving efficiency in their businesses and getting a better outcome through sustainability actions. Ken, I'd like to extend this with you. If you want to add to Sabine's reply on how the business case is evolving, great. I'd especially like to hear you talk about the politicization of ESG, because for all those things that are giving us forward momentum, we're also in this moment where ESG's never had more detractors and more pushback. How do we balance those things? Forces that are driving this are sustainability, affordability, resiliency, and security. And big things happen when there are many reasons to get them done. I just described four of the biggest reasons in the world that are explaining the energy transition, that are explaining the revolution and how we think about the use of resources by the opportunities that circularity provides. And when something is being driven by those four massive tectonic plates moving, it's something you have to take very seriously, which is why the seriousness with which Sabine described it and as noted, companies now take it is entirely appropriate. When something's that important, it's also going to be controversial and it's also going to attract people that have concerns. And so there's a big debate occurring. And I think that debate is actually a very healthy debate and an appropriate debate. So why did the debate begin? Part of it began in part because I think there was among some a belief that the real way to achieve some of these objectives was to starve capital from certain industries. And so you had a big divestment movement and people that didn't want that divestment movement had a different reaction. And that's one reason. The second reason there's been increased concern is that there were people who were in the investment industry who purported to operate in a way that they said was going to essentially be passive investors. And they said, we're going to use our positions to achieve certain activist outcomes. And the third reason there's objection is that there's concern as to whether people are essentially imposing their values on what ought to be a pecuniary focus. And finally, these are hard topics to address. The reality is the energy transition and climate action are very complicated. And how you deal with it is controversial. Similarly, how you deal with the workforce needs that we have. How you deal with questions like DEI. These are complicated questions. People have different views. So when you add those four things together, you're going to have controversy. I'll tell you how I think about it, though. To me, my job, the hat I wear is as an investor. And our job is to maximize returns for the women and men who we partner with and who invest with us. A lot of whom, by the way, are people that decided they were going to spend their lives as police 
or fire or teachers or otherwise being public servants. So in addition to having a fiduciary duty for those individuals, you have a moral duty. People that said, we're going to spend our lives serving others, we've got to help make sure that we help them have a more secure retirement. And what we've learned over a lot of years is addressing these issues, if you focus on materiality, in fact, is very much consistent with pecuniary focus. And if you ignore them, you're going to actually have real value diminution potential. So think of the examples. There's an E, there's an S, and there's a G, right? So we'll start with the G, WeWork. Uh, People that bought the rhetoric that WeWork was this great company that was going places and high flying and didn't look at how the company was governed ended up financially in a much worse place. If your investment advisor had said, put a lot of money into WeWork at the wrong time, you were going to end up taking a bath. So understanding how a company is governed is incredibly important. Let's talk about the S. Many companies, Comcast is a great company. They have an investment in NBC. Unfortunately, in lots of cases, NBC paid millions of dollars to senior people who, it turns out, like to harass their colleagues. And so understanding that a company with a rotten culture is not just going to have me too embarrassing stories, it's going to waste a lot of money and it's going to lose a lot of value is really important. By contrast, we've seen it more than 30 companies. If you can engage employees better, you reduce quit rate, you improve EBITDA, you get higher returns. So the S and ESG can be very important to financial returns. The E and ESG, let's talk about people that in 2005 invested in BP, great company, but it turns out their EHS practices and procedures in a lot of their operations weren't very good. So if you invested in BP in 2005 or 2004, you are going to end up very disappointed. And so the key is not is ESG good or bad, it's what are you talking about? And to us, if you think about what is material to a business, what matters to the business's operations that in the governance space, the social space, or the environmental space are critical, and you understand those issues, you can enhance returns, you can do better financially, and if you get them wrong, you're going to end up taking uh, a, a real loss financially. And here's the key. What ERM does that's so effective is they're our partner in identifying those issues and helping figure out, one, what are the issues in question? Two, how do you measure success and protecting value by addressing those issues in the right way? Three, what are their competitors doing? And how do we think about creating and protecting value when it comes to that? And four, what are KPIs we can use to measure? Because if you don't measure, you're not really managing. So there's no question there's controversy. There are absolutely questions regarding, is this imposing values or creating value? That's an appropriate question. We ask ourselves that every single day. And the job that I think everyone has is to say, does it make sense for this company? Not what's a good soundbite, not what's ideologically pure, but rather, how do we maximize returns? And how do we, whether we as investors or you're a corporate, you've got the same obligation, which is how do you ensure your organization is doing its best? I guess thinking where we are now in the cycle of politicization, do you think it's still heating up or are we kind of getting to a backside and a positive plateau where we can work forward on this again? I think that it is probably, in the United States at least, we're about to be, we're kind of in a presidential campaign. Uh, So Americans uh, who are watching and listening know that uh, the signal to noise ratio in a presidential campaign um, is likely to be 
less signal, lots of noise. So I think we're going to hear a bit of noise. But but I do think what was very interesting was a gentleman named Bob Eccles. Bob was the founder of the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. He is a well-known uh, leader when it comes to these questions. He wrote a very interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal where he endorsed the legislation that Florida put forward, noting that uh, it focuses on, in fact, pecuniary returns. And I think his model, his approach, is a very interesting place that can bring traditional left and right together around an approach that focuses on how do you maximize returns by focusing on materiality. But I do think that there will continue to be a debate. And the question is, how do you make sure that you've got a North Star? In my opinion, the North Star, certainly from a business perspective, ought to be how do you maximize returns? How do you protect value? How do you reduce risk? Yeah, I admire the efforts that Bob's been making to try to make it less a left-right issue and more uh, uh, an ESG sustainability performance issue and hope that he'll succeed and that we'll all succeed. Ken, you mentioned some aspects. Well, you broke down ES and G for us. And Sabine, I want to come to you with the S element of this. In your own work in the field, you've done a ton on social performance and social impact. I do think that we're still at a stage where the S can look like the weaker leg of the ESG stool. So curious if you agree and and whether you do or you don't, feel free to push back. Where are we in terms of balancing the E, S, and G at this point in the debate? I think it's true that the S has definitely in the past and to some extent still is receiving less focus and attention than the E and the, and the G. But I also think that that's changing. Well, firstly, I think the S is issues are so intrinsically linked with the E issues. You can't really solve one without the other. So if we're thinking about climate change or net zero ambitions, you're very quickly faced with questions around how do you make sure that this transition is going to be just for everyone? Similarly, when you're thinking about capital project development, you know, the opposition often comes from the S side. It's, it's usually community issues. And that's even the case when you think about renewable project development, for example, like recently we've seen in Mexico, huge opposition uh, on wind projects that were mostly related to kind of social and indigenous rights and, and biodiversity issues. Um, and I think in the past organizations, and still to some extent are, uh, you know, we're dealing with these issues in silos, but I think we are coming to terms that they are highly interlinked and need to be treated as such. I think secondly, you know, we're seeing this, this kind of gap between our rich incomes um, widening. You know, if you're looking at, at uh, you know, the top 10% and the, and the bottom 50% of individuals within countries, that has almost doubled in the past 20 years. And I don't think that society is going to, you know, allow businesses to act in a way that, that keeps exacerbating kind of that type of injustice and inequality through, through the transitions. So, you know, really understanding how transitions are going to impact employees, communities and consumers is going to be key. Um, Ken, I want to keep going with this. I know you're really interested in social performance issues as well. Your title includes the, the, the global impact role. Can you extend and talk about how this applies to impact investing as well? Absolutely. So, again, start with what are the trends I described and that Sabine described earlier. For every single one of them, you need a skilled workforce to be able to achieve its goal. So if your goal is, in fact, the goal of building out 
at a broad level, new manufacturing in solar and batteries. Um, you need new capacity infrastructure to connect through electrification. Um, you need new supply chains. All of that requires skilled workers. And today, we don't have enough of those workers. One, because we haven't built a system globally that allows for lifelong learning, to train people as new needs come up. And two, we have the retirement of my parents' generation, the baby boomers. And so there are fewer workers with a growth in the skills needed for those workers. So for every one of the things that was just described, it only happens if you've got the right skilled workforce. And that, that necessity of, of, of training workers is an incredibly important S objective. Second, you need engaged workers. A recent Gallup survey showed that more than 60% of employees are disengaged in the workplace. We see uh, the great resignation, it's called, where people are leaving and quitting their jobs. So if you don't engage the workers and you don't have them inspired and equipped to go to work every day, all this stuff is just like talk. And that's also becoming critically important going forward. And we think this is not only important that across all of our businesses, across every KKR-owned business, we are focused on measuring and seeking to improve employee engagement. Uh, one tool that we've developed that helps us do that is making employees at every level of a business, not just at the management level, owners of the company with meaningful stock ownership, the equivalent of nine to 12 months of salary in stock in addition to the nine to 12 months of salary, um, as well as providing those employees with uh, financial training, literacy training, so they understand what that means, they understand how profit is made, and how they can contribute, and real voice in how the company operates. So if everybody that works in a company thinks like an owner of the company, think of the outcomes that produces. We're trying this in 32 companies, and we're seeing the results in reduced quit rates. We're seeing the results in improved productivity. We're seeing the results in more employees coming up with innovative ideas, reduced safety risk, et cetera. At eight of the companies, we've had full exits. And eight of the, the eight companies where there have been full exits, the average MOIC, multiple of invested capital, is 4.2 times. And the average EBITDA grew by 87%. So the point is, these are incredibly effective tools to improve performance, engaging the workforce in a business. And we need to do that for these other reasons. So because of all this, it's an area we as an impact fund are investing significantly behind. Our investments fall in really three categories. The first, we've made investments in businesses like Lightcast, one of our companies, which uses labor market data analytics to figure out what are the jobs for the future, the necessary skills for the future, and the appropriate training you need to help those skills be provided to the workers or the students or whoever you're talking about that are being served. That's incredibly important. Second, businesses that provide vocational training throughout people's lives, both in person and asynchronous online. And then third, ed platforms that are helping with education, helping students learn in a way that's more personalized to their needs. There's obviously a lot of attention in the United States and other places about learning loss post-COVID. Each of these are areas where there's an opportunity to make, we think, very strong investments, but where getting it right is essential. Uh, just like governance is indispensable to everything you want to do when it comes to sustainability, in my opinion, workforce engagement and training is similarly important.
one of my former colleagues, Ken, used to say, no purpose without profit, no, no profit without purpose. And you maybe have just given us another maxim, which sounds like no impact without engagement, no engagement without impact, that these things have to be tied together. And I think fascinating the case study you're building with those 32 companies to see what works in terms of how to get people involved and to increase impact as you also better their lives economically and financially. Sabine and Ken both, I'd love to touch a couple more things as we head towards our conclusion. And one of the things in my mind is that consultancies and investors, we are part of the sustainability game without question, but we have relatively little direct sustainability impact. That's not the our own operations. Our influence is where we apply our expertise and where we put our money to work, right? So love to ask each of you, what do the big sustainability challenges we face, the climate crisis, preserving and regenerating nature, biodiversity, issues of access and equity, what do those mean for ERM and KKR in terms of using our influence? And do you have an example of a sustainability aligned portfolio goal that you can share? Sabine, you want to go first on this one? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the way that ERM can create impact, we, we look at that in three ways. The first one is through our own operations. And that really is about walking the talk and you know making sure that we are a good corporate citizen. We set really ambitious targets and we strive to be a leader. I mean, that also makes a lot of sense because we're advising businesses and it would be very odd if we if we weren't um, setting out to be a leader ourselves. So that is about you know really determining what our material issues are, setting challenging targets, measuring our progress and, and reporting. It's hugely important. The second way is through collaboration. So that's collaboration with, with other organizations where we can believe we can influence the debate. And that could be you know, with organizations like the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, could be Ceres, Capital Coalition, PRI, the, the list goes on. But under that bucket of collaboration, we also think about the ERM Foundation, which is our own employee-led um, philanthropic organization within uh, the company where we are doing lots of sustainable development goals aligned projects in the communities around us. And then the last way, but also by far the most important and biggest category is through the work that we do with our clients. And in a sense, everything that ERM gets involved in with clients creates sustainability impact because we are a pure play sustainability consultancy. But in terms of you know your, your ask for a specific goal, about four years ago, we set out very deliberately to increase the work that we do that is in aid of the low carbon economy transition. And we set publicly targets for growth around that. And you know that has, over the last three and a half years or so, increased with 300%. And now one third of our business is directly focused on um, supporting the low carbon economy transition. Ken, what about through a KKR lens? So we think a lot about this and not unlike ERM, there are three ways we can have impact in this space. One is where we invest. Second is how we partner with our companies in which we invest. And third is what we do as an institution. And we're very focused in all three. So in terms of where we invest, if you look since 2010, KKR has put $40 billion to work in companies like ERM, where the company's core product or service is addressing a critical structural global challenge, whether it be the energy transition, whether it be workforce development, whether it be responsible waste management, the need for circularity, et cetera. So I think we can, in the coming years, invest a multiple of that $40 billion, putting it to work to help build the right businesses, industries, and capacity for the kind of change we need to see across the world. 
Second, how do we operate our own companies? I mentioned the example of employee engagement. For all of our controlled investments, we and and for those that are not controlled, we try to influence. But for those that were, we're in a controlling position, we work very hard to make sure those companies are, one, uh, every year measuring employee engagement and seeking to improve and optimize that engagement. For us, that includes a direct measure of employee engagement. It also includes making sure the environment at this business is inclusive and promoting of diversity, including at the board level. Second is our companies need to manage their climate risk. And so for our direct investments, we more than 75% of our companies last year directly measured their emissions. And where material, we will work with those companies to develop company relevant and specific ways to reduce that climate risk and to seize climate opportunities. Third, uh, we want to make sure our companies take cyber hygiene seriously. That includes a combination of one, taking cybersecurity seriously, and the second, data hygiene when it comes to privacy. Finally, all this needs to be not like someone else's job. This needs Mm -hmm. to be a C-suite focus. So we want to see this built into governance. We have something at KKR called the Portfolio Management Committee. We consider these topics in the committee. And most importantly, what is the company's material ESG or sustainability issue? So if it's a manufacturing business, uh, they ought to be focused, and they are, very seriously on safety-related questions. If it's a business that's focusing on media or content, privacy becomes even more important. If it's a healthcare company, patient outcomes are important. So all of these are areas where we have partnered with our companies and have brought in third-party expertise to make sure we're approaching it in a responsible way. Finally, how we operated KKR, very focused on a number of objectives. We are, as an institution, have been carbon neutral for a number of years. In terms of disclosure, our recent sustainability report just came out as well as our TACFD report that we filed this past year. We take DEI incredibly seriously. We take it seriously because it's the right thing to do, but we also take it seriously because we know that better, in our experience, organizations are organizations that encourage people who have different backgrounds and different experiences to come to the table and bring that to the table in a way that improves outcomes. In my experience, the most problematic organizations are organizations that suffer from confirmation bias, Mm. where everybody sits around the table telling each other how smart they are while they miss a huge opportunity after another huge opportunity. That happens often when people have similar backgrounds. And our own bias in life is to look for people like ourselves. So when we're hiring, I got this smart guy who looks a lot like Ken and thinks a lot like Ken. And guess what? We don't need two Kens. We need someone who thinks differently than Ken, who's going to challenge Ken. And so, again, taking that very seriously and appreciating the importance of that uh, is something that we were very focused on. Uh, We train people each year on unconscious bias. Uh, That is incredibly important to do. It's important because it's the right thing to do, in my opinion. It is equally importantly because if you're an investor, you you need to figure out what you are biased toward and control for that. So when people say that the focus on diversity or inclusion is somehow inconsistent with um, financial returns or corporate performance, I couldn't disagree more. You've both kind of led where I wanted to end, which we've ended up talking, I think, in that last pass about how to lead, in essence. And one of the things that's on my mind broadly in the field right now is where sustainability leadership sits inside organizations. 
we've been through a period where the chief sustainability officer was driving a lot. It's now spreading to other parts of organizations. One of the places it seems to be rolling up particularly is with the CFO. And sustainable connections in one way is also about kind of paying it forward and trying to share leadership practices. So if you're observing this, that more of this is ending up in finance, I wonder how you expect CFO roles might evolve given ESG demands and how future ESG performance is going to affect access to capital and talent, some of the things that CFOs need to touch. Ken and then Sabine. I think that this increasingly, think of the four topics I talked about, um, sustainability, affordability, resiliency, and, and, and security. Uh, these are topics that affect so many different companies in so many different areas. Understanding, for example, how your supply chain is affected by these questions becomes critically important. Understanding how your customer exposure in geopolitically sensitive spaces could change. That's something a CFO better understand and better appreciate. Figuring out how many of your customers really want you to be net zero and when is something that CFOs need to appreciate and build into their model as they go forward. Do you have enough workers? Are those workers engaged? How do those workers feel about your company? All essential topics. So uh, to me, if the job of a CFO is to, is to a great CFO, is to really anticipate where the world's heading, then these capabilities need to be built into her or his uh, suite and, and, and the CFO operation. And I think you're going to only see more of that. One way they can help achieve that goal is by hiring ERM, though. <laughs> we'll take that. <laughs> Sabine, I'm not even sure how you follow that, frankly, but what's, what's your view on the evolving role of the CFO, the evolving role of leadership? Well, obviously, I fully agree with everything Ken just said, particularly the last sentence, <laughs> without joking. Like, I, I, I really agree that the role of the CFO has already become and is going to become even more important. And, and again, I think some of that started with, with TCFD when suddenly, you know, climate risk and the, the, the financial impacts of that was, was suddenly came on, onto their desks. And we're seeing that more with, you know, new regulation that is, uh, that is, that is coming. And a lot of that is going to require financial auditing standards reporting on sustainability metrics and integration of those metrics into financial reporting. So the CFO, whether they like it or not, is going to have to get involved. Secondly, yeah, I think the cost of capital is, is really going to be affected. And we're already seeing that to some extent with green or sustainability linked loans and bonds, but also many organizations have already deployed and more are deploying internal carbon prices, which needs to be taken into account you know, in terms of any investment that's made. And again, like the CFO has a, has a crucial role to play there. I also think that like, we're only really going to get progress if sustainability issues are really, truly integrated into the economic and commercial thinking of a business. And again, the, the CFO is kind of in, in, in full position there. So I think this will become, you know, it's only going to become more important. What I'd like to end with, though, is that it's not just a CFO. You know, I think actually the, the role of the CSO itself is going to have to change as well. Um, and again, we talked about Bob Eccles earlier. He, you know, he, he published another article together with Alison Taylor recently in, in the Harvard Business Review, pointing this out. And, you know, that's really about that role becoming, needing to become a lot more collaborative, like really like the linchpin within an organization, making sure that the organization is actually focused on, on 
genuine material topics because there's so much noise out there and needing to become a lot more versant you know they play a key key role in investor relations meetings these days which which wasn't the case so you know it's it's absolutely the cfo role is going to become more important when we talk about sustainability but so is that of many other c-suite execs yeah ending on those notes of integration across leadership i think is a good place to go out um, Ken and Sabine, thank you so much. Listeners, thank you for sticking with us today. If you're interested in other episodes of Sustainable Connections, they're all available on erm.com, as well as more information about our organization overall. With that, we'll leave you to your days. Ken, Sabine, thanks so much one more time. Bye for now. Thanks for including us and appreciate it. Pleasure to, uh, to be involved. Thanks a lot, Mark and Ken. Bye.